Hey, before we jump into this episode, I want to direct your attention to our Nothing is Wasted community groups. We started this platform because we were hearing from so many different people about how they were walking their valley or their pain journey alone. And they're reaching out, asking questions, wanting some advice, wanting some direction. And so we decided to start a platform for people to be able to walk with other people who are walking through the same type of valley as them. I know when I lost my late wife, Amanda, I wanted to talk to somebody else who had lost their spouse at a young age. I wanted to know there was life and hope on the other side of it. I wanted somebody else to give me advice and counsel on how to raise my son as a single dad, how to continue to move forward and heal and and, and maybe have a meaningful marriage again. I needed that hope and that guidance. And that's why we created Nothing Is Wasted Community Groups, so that you don't have to walk your valley alone. There are all kinds of people from all different walks of life, all different types of pain who have joined on these groups, a couple hundred of you so far. And we have groups for just about every type of valley that you could be walking through. We have groups for folks who have gotten a cancer diagnosis or, or caretakers of people who have gotten a cancer diagnosis. We have groups for folks who have lost young children or adult children who have lost a sibling, who have lost a spouse. We have groups for those who have gone through childhood trauma. We have groups for those who have been divorced, uh, who are struggling with marriage and infertility, who've lost a parent, survivors of sexual assault, or even for parents who are parenting kids with special needs and so many other groups. We're consistently adding more groups and more guides to these groups. You see, each group is equipped with one or more guides who are just a little bit further along in the journey as you, who are there to help facilitate the conversation and help to give you some encouragement and direction as you're moving forward through your pain. If you're interested in joining one of these Nothing Is Wasted community groups, just go to nothingiswasted.com slash community groups. Again, nothingiswasted.com slash community groups. And we'd love for you to join in on the conversation. We'd love to be a part of your journey and help you as you're living, learning, and leading through pain. Welcome to the Nothing Is Wasted podcast conversations designed to help you as you live, learn, and lead through pain. And now the host of the Nothing Is Wasted podcast, Davey Blackburn. Hello, welcome to the Nothing Is Wasted podcast. I'm your host, Davey Blackburn, and joining me, Carissa Sprinkle. Hello. For the entire month of May. Yes. Oh, it's so good to have you back. Yes. Again, so glad to Carissa, be here. Carissa's episodes with her husband, Cameron, episodes 79 and 80. Make sure you go listen to that. It was part of our sexual betrayal series. And Carissa, I want to try something totally different. I want to give us a plenty of time to do this. We often get questions written in and asked of us. I feel really bad when we don't have the time or the bandwidth to answer those questions. And so mm. I thought maybe we would take a question here and there and answer them in the intros and outros portion of our podcast. I think that's and great. That's a great idea. So if you have a question, just something that's been burning in your mind, in your heart, you want to ask it of us, write it in, hello at nothingiswasted.com, and we will see if we can fit it in. But we had a question that came in that said this. I think it's very appropriate for what you and I have both dealt with in our stories, mm -hmm. and I think we could have some good, um, some good perspective on this. Here's the question. How should Christians handle an injustice? I'm not talking about small slights or simple arguments. I mean serious injustices that wound the soul, things that happen to a man or woman that cause emotional turmoil and pain. 
How does someone handle this or what steps should be taken to help recover? Carissa, love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, man, this is such a good question. And um, yeah, I'm not, not a professional counselor by any means, but have definitely wrestled with this myself plenty, especially after mm. my husband's affair. Um, and I have just a few things that, that helped my journey and my process with it. Um, and the first one was to make sure that I just really acknowledged the injustice and valid yeah. and validated it and how intense right. it was, how serious it was. Cause I think it's important to remember that God is the God of justice and he's yeah. passionate about this issue too. That's and right. that's why he had to send Jesus to make it right because someone needed to pay. And so we can sit in that and really feel it and he can handle that. Yeah. Um, but then moving on from there, another thing would be that we do have to enter into forgiveness and we have to choose that. And, mm. and we do have to reach this point where we surrender our need for justice and knowing that we can't avenge that we can't do yeah. the revenge. So um, surrendering that is incredibly hard, but it's incredibly freeing. Mm -hmm. um, it is for our benefit. And so, yeah. um, yeah, a couple other things is just that we need to give grace and some situations will require boundaries with that. Yeah. Um, it all depends, but, um, forgiving doesn't mean that we don't also have to set boundaries. Right. Um, right. and I'd also just say lots of counseling because really intense injustices can just do a lot yeah. of damage mm -hmm. to our belief systems and yeah. all of that. So, yeah. And I mean, clearly what you've been through, Davey, was such an incredible injustice. I'm curious mm. to hear what was your process with that like? And yeah. Yeah, this is, this, I mean, when this question came in, I was really excited about answering it, but it is very complex of a question. And uh -huh. so very complex of an answer. I'll see if I can make kind of my journey brief on this. Um, I would say that one, everything that you said, I 100% agree with Carissa. I think that we have to acknowledge the fact that God sees the injustice, uh -huh. knows the injustice, and he's, his heart hurts for the injustice. Yeah, His heart is broken over the injustice all over this world. Yes. And one of the things that God has done is he has invited us to partner with him in setting the world right. Mm. And he, he yeah. opened up the portal for that partnership by sending his son Jesus to die on the cross to absorb the wrath of God toward yeah. injustice, right? And yeah. so this is what, you know, then Jesus invites us to say, hey, I want I want you to partner with me in, in setting this right. And so the way he invites us to partner with him in setting injustices right is not by retaliation or revenge. Mm -hmm. Jesus not only demonstrated how he wants us to respond, but he also uh, taught on it. And so a couple of places he taught on it. He taught when Peter said, hey, how often should I forgive my brother? If he sins against me, he says, well, seven times, you know, like above and beyond. No, it says 70 times seven. So Jesus calls, calls us to forgive just like what you said, Carissa. But um, there's another place, Matthew chapter five, where Jesus teaches on this. He says, um, you've heard it said an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? This is what we, mm -hmm. how we retaliate to injustice mm -hmm. that's being done against us. He said, but, but I tell you, do not resist the evil, the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. That's odd. Yeah. Um, if anyone would sue you, take the tunic take and take your tunic, let him have your other one as well. Hmm. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. 
give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And so what he's saying right here is um, don't retaliate or as, uh, as, as uh, Romans would tell us, don't repay evil with evil, but repay evil with good. And in doing so, what you're doing is you're stepping into a, um, a spiritual paradigm where you are partnering with God in setting things right. Because forgiveness is the only thing that sets injustice right. So true. Because what forgiveness does on our part is by saying, hey, I recognize the offense. I recognize the injustice, but I'm choosing not to be the judge or arbiter over this. I'm going to let God be that. And he so is good. perfect mm-hmm. at justice while we are not. Mm-hmm. And so that's Absolutely. kind of the journey that I've had to go on is going, you know what? What did Jesus teach on this? But then also, Carissa, how, how did he demonstrate it? Well, when injustice was done to other people, what did he do? Injustice done to other people, he goes in, clears the temple courts, right? The (laughs) people of Israel are being unjustly charged for sacrificial animals. They're being extorted, and he goes in and just goes ham. Yeah. Making sure to right the wrong done to somebody else. He steps up and says, that's not right. We've got to take care of the injustices done to other people, right? Mm -hmm. He demonstrated that. But when injustice was done to him, what did he do? He was silent. Mm -hmm. He was silent. And so that shows us, I think it's a perfect demonstration to say, hey, when injustice is done with me, I'm going to trust that God's going to take care of it. But when I see injustice done to somebody else, I'm going to step up and I'm going to act on their behalf and partner with God to push back the oppression and injustice in this world. Yeah, that is powerful. Um, so yeah, and, and I would agree with you, counseling and all of those things to really enter into that healing and and relinquish your quote unquote right for retribution. Easier said be than done, but I think easier said than after done. a betrayal and after losing mm-hmm. your wife the way that you did, like if I can truly say I don't I don't lose sleep at night over this anymore. Right. And I did, I did, but I don't anymore. And not that I don't have triggers or bad days, but um, yeah. forgiveness is what releases that hold and yep. surrendering that. We'll put so well in the said. show notes. I, I preached a message on forgiveness. We'll put in, put those in the show notes. So I'm going to make sure that we mm. make note of that. If you want to go and listen to like more of a 35 minute, <laughs> you know, synopsis, it's hard to answer that question in six minutes, but, um, hopefully that really helps you, um, for all of you guys and the person who wrote that question in. Yeah, that's so good. And um, before we get any further, um, I just want to quick read a review on iTunes because if you leave a review on iTunes, it just helps get the word out about Mm. what we're doing here and all these powerful stories and um, all the things that we need to help us navigate through pain and through tragedy. So let me read one. This one was really good. Um, It said, I have found the Nothing is Wasted podcast to be such a great resource as I serve as a volunteer leader in my local church. While I have not experienced the pain that many of the speakers have, listening to this podcast has helped me learn how to have empathy for people who have, so that as I shepherd people, I have some insight in how to listen to them and hopefully show them the love of Christ. I have also ordered several books written by podcast guests, and they have served to help answer some of my own questions I've had on my faith journey. The Nothing is Wasted podcast has value for all who listen, regardless of their life experience or where they are or their faith journey. I completely second all of that. Man, so, that's the first time yeah. I haven't. That's the first time I've heard that review. That was really cool. So that, good. to know that not only are we in the podcast ministering to people who find themselves in the middle of pain right now, but we're also helping others who are ministers. 
you know? Yes. And helping them understand. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah, That's amazing. That was so good. So thank you for writing that in. Yeah. Yes, thank you yes. so much. And, um, we'd love for you to go and while you're listening to this interview with Michelle Kashat, uh, we want you to go and, and mention us on Instagram, share it, get the word out there. Nothing is wasted ministries is our Instagram handle. If you just take a little screenshot of you listening to it or, um, you know, sh- share, uh, something that was really insightful uh, from this, from this interview and, uh, get the word out there. We would love for you to do that. And so without further ado, let's listen to this conversation that I have with Michelle Cachette. Michelle, so great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Davey. I've been really looking forward to this. (laughs) Well, we have as well, especially as I got my hand on your book and then started reading into your the testimony of your life and your life story. And I was like, okay, we've got to talk to this lady. <laughs> it's a real lighthearted story. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I love how in I read in your bio that you uh, you are a reluctant expert on trauma and yeah, pain. I, mean, I don't know of anybody that really wants to be an expert on trauma, but hello, it seems to be the theme of my life. So. I know. I love that. That was such a great caveat. Uh, reluctantly, I've gotten into this space and, and, you know, it's true. Everybody, this is a space, pain, suffering, hardship, it it is the common denominator of life, as we say often on this podcast. It's also the club that nobody wants to pay the membership dues for. <laughs> exactly. I call suffering the great leveler. It puts Oof. all of us on the same playing field, but nobody nobody wants to actually have to experience it. So, yeah, yeah same. Yeah. Well, and what we're going to find out even, you know, and as we have found out in so many conversations, and we'll find out more in your conversation that nobody wants to go through it. And yet on the other side of things, we begin to see the rich beauty that comes out of it. And so um, you wrote this book, Relentless, and I love the title of it, but I want you to talk to me a little bit about the inspiration behind it. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, the short of it, uh, I'll give you kind of a high level view and because uh, it's kind of the story of my entire life. So, I'm not <laughs> so we're going to find a welcome. lot of different <laughs> trails to go down on this. <laughs> I'm going to attempt to give you a slice of 48. Aren't you so happy? Oh, I love it. But the short of it is, is my parents became Christians when I was about five months old, somewhere around five months old. And so even though they were brand new to faith in their late 20s, I've never known a life without Jesus in it. Okay? Mm. And so that in itself is kind of its own interesting thing. Yeah. However, somewhere along the way, and we can dig into this a little more, I came to believe that, that I needed to be good for God to love me. Mm that I needed to be a good person, do all the right things, not do the wrong things in order to have security with God's love and affection and presence. Okay. I don't know. There was not a moment in time that it happened. There wasn't some kind of moment. Um, It's just somewhere along the way, that kind of mass became part of my faith journey. Mm -hmm. And that served me really well in my early years in my first 20 years when I could just work really hard and get good grades and go Mm -hmm. to youth group and all that kind of stuff. But then I became an adult. And over a period of about 25 years, I had crisis and loss and trauma after crisis and trauma and loss. And so what I ended up doing then is thinking, if all these bad things are happening, I must be bad. Yeah, Something must be wrong with me. Uh, and so I equated the presence of pain with the absence of God. And wow. what do I do, right? What do I do in that kind of place? Either I've done something wrong and God has abandoned me or yeah. he isn't real at all. 
Wow. <laughs> well, you are okay. You gave us a really, really rich uh, theological concept right there. Yes. Can we now let's, let's get into the? the I know we went in there right, yeah, <laughs> right away. Let's step back for just a second. And when you talk about these different crises and um, and pain that back to back to back hit your life uh, mm-hmm. in your mid twenties, begin to lay that out for me chronologically, so we can kind of get a context for it. You got it. So in my early 20s, I, I went to a Christian college. I had always, my, my dream had been to be in full-time Christian service. So mm. yeah, I walked down the aisle at the youth conference. I committed myself to serving God with my life, whatever that looked like. When I was 21, I married a pastor, went into full-time ministry with my pastor husband. And on paper, it looked like everything that I had prayed for was coming true. Like Mm. it looked great on paper. And then six years into that marriage, a little bit more than six, I found out there was a whole um, secret life going on that I knew nothing about with my spouse. And without going into details that aren't mine to share, uh, long story short, my marriage fell apart. I was 27 years old, a single mom of a one and a half year old, and I was watching my husband drive away for the last time. Wow. Wow. So um, that started it. That's, that's just the beginning, wow. but that was pretty significant. So yeah. as a girl who was raised in church, taught to value the sanctity of marriage, that marriage is forever, mm-hmm. uh, and being in ministry with my spouse, to, to end up divorced, and this was back in the 90s, right. all right? Uh, back in the 90s, churches didn't know what to do with divorce people. That was people. the scarlet A, yeah. It was, mm-hmm. it was. I mean, it was worse than just about anything else with exactly. end up divorced. Well, especially to be in ministry, so not even just like how to attend, but like, I'm, you're someone like who's on staff or in ministry and leadership position, and now you found yourself divorced. Now that is that's Matt. I mean, it was huge. And yeah. so, literally, I thought I could no longer be used by God. Mm. I was beyond. I was beyond help, beyond redemption. Any dream I had of serving the kingdom in some kind of meaningful purpose was gone because I was. I was divorced. Right. Wow. Well, not to mention that you have a one and a half year old, and so now you're navigating the you know, the dilemma of, okay, now I need to figure out how to provide for this one and a half year old, figure out how to navigate the emotional duress that you were dealing with from the divorce, the abandonment, the betrayal, all of that, as well as just start to move forward with life. Just trying to survive. You know, I was 27 years old, waking up at 5 a.m., dropping my child off at daycare, doing a job that I didn't have a degree in just so I could get home and pick him up from daycare take care of him and do it all over again and stay. I mean, it was just a radical life shift. Man. Okay. So I want to, so what I want to try to do is kind of go through several of these things and then we'll step back and kind of hit some of these individually and see what God, how God was shaping you. So next in the chronology of crisis. After that divorce, I really, you know, my initial wrestling was I had been praying for my spouse since I was probably in grade school. So mm-hmm. I, you know, being raised in the church, I'm praying for my spouse. I really, I prayed for God to bring me a Christian spouse that I could partner in ministry with. It looked like God had answered it. And then all of a sudden, like yanking a carrot away, like dangling a carrot right, and y- right. yanking it, I end up single. So that was its own struggle of going, it's the one thing I've prayed for my whole life. And really, mm-hmm. you, couldn't, you couldn't do that for me, God. Mm-hmm. And so that was its own struggle. But even through that, 
um, over a few years, it took a while, God used um, Isaiah 61 to help rebuild mm. my confidence that he could make me an oak of righteousness, That's a great. planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. And so I picked myself back up again and, and moved forward with life. And right about that time, I uh, met a gentleman who was a single father at our church, a single father of two boys. He had gone through an unexpected divorce. And so here we are, you know, he's in his early 30s. I'm about to turn 30. And I'm like, wouldn't that be a great idea if we mm -hmm. just put our families together? Because that would be easy. Right. And so then we did step family. And that came <laughs> with its own set of challenges, right? So you take, take five people who are suffering significant yeah. losses in their primary family relationships and betrayal in marriage and everything else. And you just put everybody in the same house and say, hey, this will Get work. Along. <laughs> <laughs> Holy cow. All right, let's do this. I'm going to pause for a second because this is something I'm super interested in because we have a blended family. Um, I lost my first wife and my wife now, her first marriage ended in divorce. And so we joined families. She had a daughter. I had a son, blended families. Now we have one of our own. And so these challenges that you guys begin to face together blending this family, uh, what were some of those challenges and, and how did you begin to figure out how to work through those things? Well, probably the biggest challenge, or I can speak for myself, my biggest challenge is I was trying to recreate the, the traditional family that I lost. Mm. And so I had all kinds of pressure I was putting on our new family to make it look like what I had always dreamed a family would be. Mm. Wow. But a blended family does not operate like... Uh, a, an original or traditionally oriented family because there's way too much loss that comes into the equation. Yeah. Whether it's death or divorce, it doesn't really matter. The people coming into that family have have suffered some kind of trauma, some kind of ripping of relationship. And the more pressure you put on trying to, to build a family with original blueprints rather than allowing some freedom and flexibility to create a new family, the more that you do that, superimpose that. By the way, a not polite word for that is called a, being a control freak. Mm. And <laughs> the more you do that, everybody's living under this significant pressure. And what happens is, is we end up hurting each other. Mm. Wow. So uh, you guys begin to blend this family and yep. uh, that wasn't the last of these, this no. line of crises. And we, we are blended family. We get to about the 10 year mark, the 10 year mark. You know, we're like, I think we are going to figure this out. We're going to make it. Nobody's going to commit homicide here. We're going to be all right. Mm -hmm. We're going to move forward. And about the 10 year mark, then on an ordinary Tuesday before Thanksgiving, I was 39 years old at that time. Uh, I got a phone call from a doctor. I just sent my children off to school. My husband was going to work. It was Thanksgiving week, which is my favorite holiday, and but everything changed with that phone call. And simply, um, the doctor on the other end of the line said, Michelle, I'm sorry, the news isn't good. It's not good. And I found it out in that moment that there was a small ulcer on the side of my tongue that wouldn't heal. People mm -hmm. get those all the time. Mm -hmm. The doctor reassured me probably a half dozen times, you have nothing to worry about. It's fine, but we're going to do a biopsy just to make sure. And I found out on that Tuesday that I had squamous cell carcinoma of the tongue. Mm -hmm. In other words, cancer of the tongue. Uh, I didn't even know something like that existed. So in the span of seconds, literally seconds, I went from being a very healthy, strong, confident woman to being a woman that wasn't sure she would live. And mm -hmm. that was terrifying. Mm -hmm. Wow. Now, at this point, let, let me ask you this. Were you, 
were you in ministry at this point or what was your, what was your like career calling vocation? I was in ministry on my own, not in the church, but mm-hmm. I was making, basically my ministry was as a writer and a speaker. I okay. was making my living as an author, as a communicator. I trained speakers. That's what I do mm-hmm. did for a living. And so it kind of hit close to home. Yeah, to have <laughs> cancer of the tongue when exactly. that's your... I'd grown rather attached to my tongue, so I didn't yeah. really want to... To lose it. So, so there were multiple implications. First of all, hearing the word cancer at 39 is not something anybody right. wants to hear. I was a, a mom of, of young children, married, and I made a living using my mouth. So yeah. uh, all of those things were significant. Uh, what I ended up finding out after, you know, over the first few weeks, we had lots of doctor's appointments and PET scans and blood tests and all of that. I found out it was kind of a best case scenario for cancer, cancer caught early. Mm. So they scheduled the surgery where they took out a small section of my tongue. And then after it was over, they said, Michelle, we got it all. You're good. You will probably never, ever have to deal with this again. So I put cancer Mm. on the shelf and really never expected to see it again. However, the fear was its own issue. The constantly looking Mm. over my shoulder, waiting for the next hammer to fall. Right, right. Which is the, the case for, I mean, we have this conversation a lot especially my wife and I, because we both experienced some significant trauma and loss and pain that we kind of now, I mean, I used to be an idealist. I think I still am an idealist, but I used to be an optimist in the sense that I would think, oh, you know what? That kind of bad stuff, that's going to happen to other people. It's not going to happen to me, especially since I'm serving the Lord. I'm in ministry. There's this, there's this deal that we have, God, where, you know, Mm -hmm. I'll serve you. Our family will serve you and you're going to protect us. And then when that bottoms out, you begin to ask these questions like, wait a minute, where are you, God? Like, I thought this was the deal and fear begins to creep in. I understand that. So um, as that begins... innocence, right? I think it's it. a loss of innocence yeah. where you think it's going to work a certain way. And that's, you know, over time, I've come to learn that I really had, had turned God into a math equation that I could manipulate. Mm. And God instead said, hold on a second. I am beyond your control. Uh, And so that was what was so terrifying is there was no amount of Christian service I could do that would make me immune to the hardships of life. Wow. Wow. So this fear, like, how did you begin wrestling with that fear? How did you, did you just keep it at bay? Were you finding freedom from it? Like, what was that look like? I mean, that was the hardest part the first time around. The fear was really the hardest part. I mean, I would look up every verse I could find in the Bible on fear. And there are quite a few, yeah. um, you know, just over and over again, quoting those scriptures on fear, not I, I, one of the best things that helped me is just speaking out loud because mm-hmm. fear is something that thrives in the silence. And so I had to consistently say, I trust you, God, I trust you. I trust you. I trust you until I actually believed it <laughs> until yeah. I felt that way. Yeah. But a lot of it was just a battle in my mind. Uh, one day I sat my husband down and shared with him that I'm, I was petrified. I mean, almost a panic. Mm-hmm. You've, you've been there. I have mm-hmm. no doubt yeah. when you go through trauma, it, it hits you almost like a intense panic. You feel like you're suffocating from right. the fear. And I was sharing with him. I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I was so emotional. And he looked at me, my husband's a, not a man of very many words, right? He's, mm-hmm. He doesn't have many words, but he looked at me and very clearly said to me that day, he said, Michelle, if you really believe what you say you believe, it's only going to get better for you from here. Mm. 
And for whatever reason, that day it hit me square between the eyes. And I had to decide, do I really believe? Do I really believe that God sent his son Jesus to save me? And he's preparing a place for me. And that someday when I die, that my death is not the end of the story, but there's something else waiting. And if I really believe that, then even though this life can be terrifying, it's only going to get better for me from here. Mm. Wow. Now, you, you put cancer on the shelf as far as in your mind. Cancer mm-hmm. didn't stay on the shelf, though, right? It didn't. So um, before we get to that, though, yeah. eight, let's do one more little let's, event. Let's eight months that, after yeah. that first cancer diagnosis, I got another phone call, but this time it wasn't from a doctor. We heard from a family member who knew about three children who were from a pretty severe trauma background. They were twin four-year-olds and a five-year-old, two girls and a boy. And the question was asked of my husband and I, will you take them? Mm. Now, I have to tell you, as a mom who at that point in time, I had mostly raised my children. Two were teenagers that had graduated from high school. One was getting ready to drive. So basically, the question was, hey, you just finished parenting, but we'd like you to go back and start all over again. Wow. Wow. (laughs) With three Uh children who had experienced significant trauma. Trauma. So not just parenting. This is, tra- yeah, trauma-induced parenting. Oh, and I'm only eight months out from a cancer diagnosis, oh, right? Oh, my goodness. So there's holding these intention. And, uh, you know, I'd love to tell you that I was wonderfully altruistic and like, yes, let's do it. Go, Jesus. But mm-hmm. I had more of that, really? Mm. <laughs> no, thank you. Somebody else can do this. And yet over the course of about 24 hours, this is, this is kind of what I felt the impression from God. For my whole life, I had said I wanted to do full-time Christian service. I had said that I would go anywhere and do anything for God. I had told him I would go to Africa or Asia or whatever and serve him. And God very clearly said to me, not audible, but very clearly in my spirit during that 24-hour phase, Michelle, I know you said you'd go anywhere and do anything for me. I'm not asking you to go. I'm asking you to stay. Will Mm. you take them? Wow. (laughs) Wow. And in that... In that 24 hours, I realized that my experience with the trauma of a, of a cancer diagnosis had prepared me to love children who also knew what it was like to wake up every day afraid. Mm. And that maybe some of my own experience with fear and uncertainty about the future would help me to hold space with these children who, also, who only knew from birth on fear and uncertainty. Mm. Wow. And so 24 hours later, we packed up our car with borrowed car seats because we were way beyond car seats at this point. <laughs> and we drove to another state and picked up these twin four-year-olds and five-year-olds and brought, brought them home. Wow. Wow. Hey, Nothing is Wasted family. I have author, counselor, and relationship expert Deborah Faleda with me. You may remember her from episode 101 and from our Toxic Relationship series. Deborah, you've written this book called Love in Every Season, and in it, you talk about how conflict is key. I would think you would want to avoid conflict by all means, but you say it's key. Can you explain that? You know, so many people are afraid of conflict. They see it as the thing to be avoided. They view it as an uncomfortable, difficult, or even unnecessary part of a relationship. But the truth is that without conflict, there can't be a connection. 
That's why conflict is key. It's actually an important part of a relationship because it's an invitation to draw closer to each other than ever before. So first and foremost, it starts with changing our view of conflict by seeing it as an opportunity to connect in our differences. But secondly, the key to conflict is learning how to use it in a way that brings you closer together, not further apart. That's what I want to unpack with you in Love in Every Season, the nine keys to handling conflict well, because healthy conflict leads to healthy connection. Thank you, Deborah. If you want to purchase this book, you can get it at nothingiswasted.com slash love in every season. Again, nothingiswasted.com slash love in every season. You know, one of the things, uh, and, and then, you know, I'll say this and then we'll continue because I want to get, again, some more context before we dive into some of these individually. But one of the things I love about um, interviewing someone like you, Michelle, oftentimes we'll interview folks who are, you know, even younger than I am, and they have one big crisis that has happened in their life so far. And I'm like, wouldn't that be nice? And they go, <laughs> hey, here's what God's taught me out of this one big crisis. You've got several different things. We're going to talk some more about, you know, some other ones that, you know, after this, bringing these kids in. Um, and so what's really great about it is you're able to get a, and help us to see a full picture across so many different things of some of the big ideas um, surrounding God, surrounding our human experience with God, uh, surrounding fear and doubt and trauma and, and how to begin to um, unpack these things so that we can experience God more fully. Okay. So as I'm listening to this, I'm going, I don't know how we're going to dive into each one of these things. <laughs> But maybe we're not. Maybe we're supposed to kind of take a macro look at everything. But please continue. So after you took these kids in, <laughs> we'll do our best. I mean, there's a lot here, and it's so great, uh, though. Yeah, the beauty of it on the other side is the richness of what God has allowed me to learn and, yep. and allowed me to grow in. Is like you couldn't pay for this kind of education, no, uh -uh. Mm -hmm. right? I wouldn't choose to do it again, mm -hmm. but I wouldn't take it away either. Yep. Yep. All right, so we've taken these three kids, and that launched us right into, um, and by the way, twin four-year-olds and five-year-olds, there's only nine months between the four-year-olds and the five-year-olds. So three months out of the year, they're triplets. So basically, we're now raising triplets who have a history of severe abuse neglect. Wow. Okay. And so uh, for those who aren't familiar, kids who have experienced severe abuse neglect in their history, it literally changes the way their brain operates. Mm -hmm. So the brain um, has three different parts. You have the, the base of the brain, which is your fight, flight, freeze. You've got the amygdala, which is kind of the emotional center. And then you have your prefrontal cortex, which helps make executive decisions. But people who have been, children who have been in trauma the whole first four or five years of their life, they basically live in the fight, flight, freeze place mm -hmm. all the time right? So everything feels dangerous. So we're navigating, trying to create safety for children who have never known safety a yeah. single day of their life. Wow. And that literally turned our house into somewhat of a battle zone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then you add on top of that, my own experience with trauma, mm. you know, both my husband and I having experienced unexpected divorces and now medical crisis. And so everybody is being triggered. <laughs> wow. 
Oh my gosh. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just like, really? Uh, I mean, the layers and the, so long story short, we, you know, we get therapists, we get people involved, we're plugging through all of this uh, and we are starting to make progress. We're about three years into having these children when again, I get a phone call from a doctor and I believe it was February of 2014. And once again, the doctor said, I'm sorry, Michelle, the cancer is back. Wow. This time it was more severe than the first time. In fact, they did a longer surgery. It was like, I think a three or four hour surgery where they took out one third of my tongue. Mm. They replaced that one third of my tongue with a biological skin graft. Uh, uh, here, this you'll appreciate this. Maybe you won't. For any squeamish people, just plug your ears. They use a pig bladder to help rebuild my tongue. I know. I know. It sounds awful, but I'm telling y'all, basically, I had bacon in my mouth 24-7. So, (laughs) y'all, who's winning here? Oh, that's so great. (laughs) So, they did this skin graft. It required about eight weeks of recovery. Uh, On top of that, just the realization that cancer could come back, that the doctors were wrong the first time. But I'm so determined, right? I'm, I'm so kind of fiercely stubborn, determined type A that eight weeks later, I was back to speaking around the country mm-hmm. on different platforms. I was running the half marathon. I was like, full steam ahead. We're not going to quit. Let's go. <laughs> Jeez. Is that something that was just wired? That's like part of your wiring? And how has all of these, as far as being like, I mean, your book's called Relentless, but this perseverance mentality, this is just like, this is just kind of who you are or, or how has all of these things that you've experienced uh, maybe impacted that type of perseverance in you? Well, at that point in time, I would say I'm I'm somewhat wired that way anyway. So it's kind of a natural part of my personality, but I was also raised by a father who has his own history of severe abuse, neglect as a child. Mm has his own trauma history. And so he raised me to be a hard worker that you can't wait for life to happen. You have to make it happen. Mm-hmm. And so one of the greatest gifts he gave me was my determination and work ethic. So there was a sense of, um, of working hard and not quitting. Like to quit was the worst thing in the world. So you don't ever give up. You mm-hmm. always keep moving forward, which serves me well to a point mm-hmm. until seven months after that second diagnosis of cancer, I got a third phone call from the doctor telling me again that cancer had come back for a third time. And so what you need to know at this point is in between the second and third diagnosis of cancer, I was on tour with Women of Faith. I was their MC for their fall tour. So I was in 14 different cities with the Women of Faith team. I was doing a leadership podcast with Michael Hyatt, which had millions of downloads. Mm -hmm. So I was using my speaking quite regularly. Uh, And also in between these two diagnoses, my dad, who was the one that gave me that kind of determination, ended up diagnosed with terminal pancreatic cancer and, and died eight weeks before. Wow. So that was a pretty brutal seven months. And then there I am, November, it's November of 2014. Um, I'm literally on tour with Women of Faith, and I get another phone call saying, cancer is back for the third time. They gave me two weeks to get my affairs in order. There was no promise of a cure at this point. Uh, And after after those two weeks, they put me in the hospital for a week. They did a nine-hour surgery where they removed two-thirds of my tongue. 
They also cut open my neck six to eight inches, took out blood vessels, my submandibular gland, my lymph nodes, used the tissue to help rebuild some semblance of a tongue, cut open my arm from wrist to elbow, took another skin graft from there as well as vessels to rebuild, and also from my left leg to help rebuild. It was like Humpty Dumpty. They were putting all the pieces of me back together again. Oh my gosh. I was in ICU for a week, uh, well, a few days in the hospital for a week. After that, they sent me home, gave me four weeks to recover from that surgery. And then they started uh, extreme chemotherapy and external radiation on my head and neck. And just so you know, when you start shooting radiation at your face and your neck, it is in completely different kind of scenario than radiation on the other parts of your body. You're basically burning your face, your neck, wow. your throat, your trachea, all of that. And so all that to say, after treatment was done, by the time treatment was done, uh, I had a feeding tube for five months. I had a tracheostomy for almost two to keep me from choking. All nourishment went in through my stomach for that long. I had scars over from nose to chest. I have like third degree burns. I had scars all over my body. And basically the doctor said, we have to take you to the brink of death with the chance of maybe saving your life. Gosh. Michelle, at this point, <clears throat> if you hadn't already throughout all of these experiences begun to, you know, wrestle with and question God, at this point, you've got to be like, God, what gives? Like, yes, can I exactly. not catch a break? I mean, is this, you know, you find yourself, I imagine this is like at the end of your rope going. Yeah. Basically I ran out of fight. I had yeah. no fight left. So just very, you know, my traditionally characteristic bulldog determination mm -hmm. was gone. I had none. Mm -hmm. uh, at some point in time, you can only go through so much until you just can't do it anymore. Right. And so in April, after all of this had happened, so when treatment was done, at this point, different body systems weren't working anymore. I was in extreme physical pain 24 hours a day. In, or, in other words, to give you an idea, I was taking fentanyl. Mm. Most people are familiar with fentanyl now because it's so lethal. I mean, people are dying from it left and right. Yeah. I was on fent fentanyl 24 hours a day, 24 seven for six months. My gosh. And on top of that, I was taking liquid morphine just to take the edge off because the fentanyl didn't always work. And I was still, even with fentanyl and morphine, I was in so much physical pain, excruciating pain, that I, there were days where I was just writhing on the couch, you know, just like curled up and, and was, mis I mean, literally begging God to let me die. Wow. So, um, at this, at this point, I'm going to assume, I have not read the book. I don't know if you put it in there. But I can just imagine that these are the points and these are the moments that God meets you. Well, initially, that's part of the problem is he seemed silent. Mm. So the opening chapter of the book, it's one that uh, it was very hard to write, but I just lay it out there. The opening scene of the book is me in my basement in April 2015. And I'm holding a glass of Maker's Mark whiskey in one hand and holding my morphine bottle in the other. And it occurs to me that it would only take about 15 minutes for my suffering to truly be done. Mm. And for someone like me, who's always been pretty determined, you know, you know, I don't give up. I push yeah. through to reach a place where I did not 
want to wake up anymore. Gives you an idea of the extent of my suffering and the, the fear that God truly either wasn't real or had left me. I don't think anybody at that point would blame you for asking that question, God, are you, are you real? Are you here? Because it, it seems like you're, you know, either you don't exist or you're miles and miles and miles away and you don't care. Okay. And my biggest fear was that somehow I'd done something wrong and disappointed them and that's why I was suffering. Which goes back to the very first crisis in your life. Absolutely. And the foundation that was laid early on in your life. And the irony, you know, I, I live a very public life. So I'm, you know, I'm on platforms, I speak, I write yeah. books, I'm out there. Uh, thousands of people were praying for me. Thousands of people praying for me for five years, you know, through this whole, and yet cancer kept coming back. And not just cancer, I'm dealing with my dad's death, the yeah. one who taught me faith. He died, even though we prayed for his healing. And he died eight weeks before my third diagnosis. Mm -hmm. I'm like, really, God? You couldn't just wait for a few months. You couldn't, I can't even catch my breath. Yeah. And then on top of that, kind of like what you mentioned before, I took in three kids. Right. Don't I deserve some kind of, right. some kind of pat on the I mean, back? Like, give me a pass on this one. You know? Yeah. Haven't wow. I done it? Haven't I sacrificed enough for you guys? Haven't I given enough yeah. for you? Haven't I lost enough? At what point will I matter to you enough mm. to bring some relief? Which these are like, and that's the thing, Michelle, these are, valid questions. I mean, these Absolutely. are the questions that so many of our listeners are wrestling with, um, whether they've gone through the extent of what you've gone through or not. We are all getting to this point where we're like, we're at the end of our own rope. We're at the end of what we can muster up, the strength and the courage and the resilience that we can muster up. And you started asking these questions. Um, and where did the answers come from? <laughs> well, I wish I could say. <laughs> I just got a bunch of, like God just downloaded a memo with a bunch of answers for me. It didn't quite happen like that. Yeah. Uh, and even to this day, I don't have answers. Mm. I mean, I don't have, we so, what's so interesting is we really think we want answers. We want everything to make sense. Mm -hmm. We want the math to add up. We want everything to be very clear. But over, you know, it's now been uh, four years. Mm. Since four and a half years since I ended treatment, but it's now been five years since that surgery that removed almost all of my tongue. Uh, so it's been, we've had some time here. And so I've had some time to wrestle it with it. But we think we want answers, but I suspect, or at least for me, I know that if everything, if everything made sense, if I could make everything add up and had explanations for everything, God would be too small. Mm. And at some point I had to decide, do I, do I really want a God that I could wrap my brain around? Or do I want a God that is so much bigger than me, so much beyond me, so much beyond my unraveling and figure it out that truly, like a child, I can trust him to have it covered, even if I don't understand all the pieces and parts. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about this idea of trauma, because um, all the different things that you've experienced, there was trauma laid on top of trauma, laid on top of trauma. And what I know about trauma is that trauma can cause, like you mentioned earlier, this reorientation of your brain to where it's a reorientation of your perspective and how you begin to view the things that are occurring in your life. Um, how did you begin to kind of deconstruct all of this trauma? What did that look like to try to have a perspective that you have right now? Um, what, what was necessary for, for that? You know what? Cause again, 
if, if you're just experiencing these things, which many people have, it can cause such a, such a distorted, skewed view on and perspective on life that it does cause you to just want to give up. And mm-hmm. you were at that place where you were almost there. But, but somehow you have gotten to this place now where you're like, wait, I have a different perspective on this. I see God differently in this. Yes. What were the steps there of deconstructing this trauma? Well, there's been many steps in between then and now. And I, I want, before I even dive into this, I want to let you and those who are listening know, I still have bad days. It's not mm. like I'm, everything's ponies and rainbows at this point. <laughs> yeah, I still have hard days. That's, that's part of it. Right. Uh, I, I live with chronic pain. You can imagine I have, mm. you know, I have burn scars all over my neck and throat, but they're also inside. Uh, talking is very difficult for me. That's why I talk with a mm. lisp. Eating is very difficult. I only have probably 20% of my taste left. That, wow. that is a bummer. That's a major bummer, especially around the holidays and, and birthdays and things like that. So living with chronic pain and a permanent functional disability. So I still have hard days. I still have questions. I just want to make that clear because mm-hmm. I think one of the false expectations we have is that we're going to arrive at a point where everything is rainbows and where everything feels good all the time and there's no questions and no pain and everything's good. And that, that is not a realistic expectation. In fact, Jesus said very clearly in this world, you will have trouble. That's just a, we need to embrace that as a guarantee. That is just a part of life. So that said, some of the steps I had to do, the very first and most important thing is I needed to hold space for the grief. Mm. One of the most dangerous Christian practices that we have is this compulsion to bootstrap ourselves to a Mm. place of positivity and to pretend and put on a very put together front. It is, first of all, if I can be so bold, I'll be really blunt. It's dishonest. Mm -hmm. It's just not true. And somewhere along the way as Christians, we have come to believe that that pretending to have it all together and to bootstrap to ourselves to the place that to say it's all it's all good everything's great mm-hmm. uh, is the only way to handle hard things and that's not to me that even dishonors the cross. Mm-hmm. Uh, the cross is a perfect example of calling it what it is. It's it was death. It's a it's a brutal uh, horrific loss. Yeah. Uh, and so one of the most important things with trauma that you have to do in the beginning is stop pretending that everything's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, y- you'll get to a place where you can say God is good, but you don't have to tout that, that meme and motto and cliche right now. Yeah. You say, this is awful. Yeah. And so I spent, actually, I was going to say months, I spent years literally just grieving, mm-hmm. just being angry and um, and frustrated and confused and indignant about the injustice of my reality. Hmm. I'm so glad you mentioned that because, um, you know, again, we were talking off air about, you know, that, that aspect of what it seems like in Christianity where you just have to whitewash things and put on this front. And you're saying that you spent years in grief. Some people might look at that and go, wow, this is someone who has lost their faith this is someone who is like wallowing. Can you, can you speak to the beauty of sitting and wrestling in that? I mean, lament, gosh, we have lost the practice of lament in the American Christian church. Mm. 
the beauty of lament. I, I mean, go read Lamentation sometime. Go read Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a hot mess. I mean, go read that. Um, go read the story of Elijah when he's begging God, you know, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Uh, there's so many examples of really uh, wrestling with the losses of this life. Here's the, here's the deal. Jesus didn't come to redeem a life that was was rainbows and ponies. He didn't. He hit, the purpose of, of his death, of his sacrifice, is to actually redeem everything that was wrong with this world. Mm-hmm. So we try to pretend uh, everything is better than it is. We are cheapening the price that he paid to redeem it. Yeah. So this practice of lament. And now when I say I grieve for years, that doesn't mean every day I was mm-hmm. sitting in a corner with a box of Kleenex. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I mean, I, I have journals filled with all the different losses. It's, it's hard to imagine unless you've been through it. Just like I can't fully imagine what it was like, Davey, for you to lose your wife. Mm-hmm. Um, but the losses of losing your taste and your tongue and mm-hmm. your ability to speak and swallow and all of that is so mo- You just have no idea. Right. Mm-hmm. It's just so yeah. I can't go out to eat with friends. Right. I can't eat and talk at the same time. So when I go out to eat with friends, they get to eat and I get to sit there and watch them or I get to eat and not participate in the conversation. There's all these different layers. And so I needed to acknowledge each one of yeah. them if I was going to be able to, to at some point live beyond them. Mm. That's, I think that's huge right there that we've got to be able to acknowledge each one of those little losses that take place. Because some people experience trauma like you have over a lifetime. Some people experience trauma the way that these kids that you took in have early on. And dealing with trauma, while they, those two look different, you know, they've, they've at least manifested themselves in different ways. Um, that I feel like, and would you, would you agree, is a major step to dealing with trauma is acknowledging it, acknowledging the losses. Acknowledge it. And, and I even would say not just acknowledging it in your head, but actually giving voice to it. Mm, why is that important? Actually putting words to it. There is something when we actually give voice to it that validates it. Hmm. When it's in our head, it's still kind of vague. When we say out loud, this happened and I'm not okay with it. Hmm. This happened and it's not fair. Uh, I had um, somebody, I can't remember who it was, but somebody was sharing a loss with me and you know, we have this impulse as humans to want to fix hard situations. Mm. So we don't like discomfort. So we try to resolve the discomfort by fixing it. So this is why we have so many cliches and memes going Mm. around social media, because we love to put band-aids on wounds, right? So somebody was sharing a a hardship with me. And I just, I looked at her and said, I'm sorry, that Mm. is not fair. It's so not fair. And she's like, thank you for saying that. I said, it's just Mm. the facts. It didn't have to be, it shouldn't be this way. And I'm sorry. Yeah. And it was amazing how her giving voice to it and then me validating it back, like mirroring it back to her was so healing for her in that moment. And that's kind of the second step. We need to acknowledge it and give voice to it, but we also need to acknowledge it and give voice to it in the presence of people who can hold space with it themselves. Mm. Can you unpack that a little bit? Would it, would it, how do we determine who those people are that are able to hold space? Oh my with goodness. Them? It's hard to find, yeah. you know, it, you know, it, it requires people to have some measure of their own emotional health and healing work. People who have done their own work of holding space for their own trauma, people who have no personal self-awareness, who have not done any work 
to be emotionally as healthy as they can be, have no ability to tolerate the discomfort mm. of honest lament. Mm. Wow. Wow. I mean, this is why you're able to have this conversation. You know, as much as I hate what you've been through, the reality is you would not even be able to hold space for this conversation if you haven't experienced it, experienced mm -hmm. trauma yourself and done, if, and God had not done some good, solid work in you to, to process and emotionally heal and grow through it. Mm. How, speaking of, uh, you know, I feel like that's one of the, one of the beautiful things that happens on the other side of trauma and crisis tragedy is that you then are able to sit with people mm -hmm. and you're able to just kind of be present with people. In that. Have you noticed that for yourself too? Oh, in my goodness. In that's what probably ways? one of the bis biggest gifts from all of us is I have a measure of credibility now. Mm. Uh, I can have conversations about faith and suffering that I had no business having before and mm. nobody would have listened to me before because I had no street cred. Right? right. And now as a result of this, I have this almost automatic credibility because I've been there. I, I get it. Uh, one of the probably the most tangible example is this one. My youngest kids, because of their history of neglect and abuse, uh, one of my children in particular was starved much of his early childhood. Mm. Uh, by the time he was about two and a half years old, he was only about 19 pounds, very, very thin, oh, wow. very small, and literally was starved most of the time. Oh, As a result, there are lots of food issues. Yeah. There's a con Even though he's been with us for eight and a half years, there's a constant fear that there's not going to be enough food. Mm. It's hard to relate to that, those of us who can go to the grocery store and get $300 worth of groceries and eat everything we want if we want to, right? Mm -hmm. It's hard to connect and it's hard to make sense of his fear when there's a refrigerator full of food all the time, right? Mm. Until I went six months without being able to drink water or eat food. So I, after my initial surgery, I went two entire weeks without being able to have a single drop of water by mouth. You know, when you have surgery and they make you not drink anything for two hours before your surgery, right. imagine doing that for two weeks. Wow. You don't realize how much you love a glass of water until you can't have it. Yeah. And then food, you know, I was on the feeding tube. So there was no enjoying food from right. uh, November till you know, April or so. Uh, and so going through that, what I noticed afterwards is I will often hoard food. I will have a stash of 12 granola bars in my purse just in case I might need a snack. Mm. And intellectually, I can tell myself, you're fine. You won't starve. You can, but it's almost, and that's been so good for me to understand yeah. how trauma has impacted my brain. Because then when I see my son's fear, I'm like, he just needs to be reminded of safety. It's okay. Mm. What what does that look like? You know, as far as I, I hate to say, finding a cure for some of these traumatic things that happen in our lives. But you know, if we th cure is probably not the best word. But when it comes to like you know, if if there's certain things like this that are that are fear induced, you know, mm -hmm. because of a traumatic thing that has happened to us, um, how do we get above that? How do mm -hmm. we you know how do we how do we begin to like parse that out and recognize and replace that fear with, with faith. And I know it's not a one-time boom, there it is. It's a cure kind of thing, but can you talk me through that a little bit? Because I know that that's something that you guys have been trying to do with your, your kids, um, but also, with, myself, but also with yourself as well as you've experienced Absolutely. this. Yeah. Well, if you read all the research on trauma and trauma therapy, uh, it, 
you can ask a psychiatrist, psychologist, counselor, whoever, if you read all of it, it will tell you that the, the single big, biggest indicator of health post-trauma is the presence of one stable, significant other. Hmm. Right? So in other words, what's wounded in relationship is healed in relationship. Yeah, that's good. Can, explain that a little bit, because that's such a great... We learned that concept too, and it was like mind-blowing for us to kind yeah. of like... But explain that idea of what's wounded in relationship is healed in relationship. Well, it's so funny, because we, if we're wounded in relationship, and let's be honest, almost all wounds that we carry are the result of a relationship, okay? A that's more, just... Yep. Welcome to the human condition. Yeah. <laughs> and it comes in many different shapes and forms. And even my faith struggle was a wound in relationship with God. Mm. Okay. Right. That was a relation. That was a wound in my relationship with, with God himself. And so yeah. those are, those wounds happen that mark us. They, they traumatize us. Uh, they, they, it's kind of like a ripping. Okay. Mm. And we feel that. Well, if that wound is going to happen in relationship, you can't heal it in isolation. Mm. In other words, in order to counteract the damage that's been done, you need to have experiences, positive experiences of healing and growth in relationship to help heal that wound that happened in relationship. Wow. So then that leads us to, you know, of course I interrupted you, so I apologize for that, but that leads us then to this quote unquote cure or overcoming the, the, the fear that is the foundation behind our trauma. So from a purely scientific, you know, psychology kind of standpoint, that is why kids who come from trauma need to have even more connection and attachment with a safe, significant other, a mm. caregiver, a, an adoptive parent, somebody. Um, for you, after losing your wife, mm. you you needed to find healing in bonding with your, your new wife, mm. in bonding with the people around you, the community around you, and with your children. Mm. If you would have shut down and isolated, it would have been like a death sentence for you. Right, right. right? And so you choosing to connect to connect in the place of your pain was actually one of the biggest um and one mm. of the most significant parts of your healing wow which though is the one of the greatest fears for folks who have experienced relationally based trauma is they begin to isolate themselves because they say well it happened once and my fear tells me it's going to happen again so to, to wall myself off from that happening again, I'm going to go into self-protection mode. So now you see what's, mm. when you look at what's wrong with humanity, this is it. This is the, because the you have wow. every, every human being is marked by trauma and we're navigating our own trauma responses in relationship with each other. And then we re-wound each other because one of us is isolating and the other one's trying to connect or vice versa, right? Mm. So we have this human race marked by trauma that is trying its best to heal, but because we're traumatized, we can't figure out how to do it. Mm. Now, I'm going to pause you for a second because this is so important. I so desperately want people to get this. I want you to step back for a second. I want you to look at the story of the gospel. Genesis to Revelation. The story of the gospel, the Garden of Eden, is a story of trauma. Mm. Adam and Eve endured a relational trauma from God because they sinned. God actually kicked them out of the Garden of Eden, literally said he separated them from the mm -hmm. intimacy of God. And that was the first traumatic experience in relationship. It marked humanity. Mm. From then on, God has been working to repair that relationship, right? Yeah. He cuts a covenant with Abraham and a covenant that says, this is our agreement, our relational agreement. However, God knew 
Okay. Keep this in mind. I get so excited about this. Mm -hmm. God knew we would not be able to do, we would not be able to handle our trauma well and fulfill our part of the agreement. So in his covenant with Abraham, he alone, he said, I am responsible for this. He walks through the pieces. You can go look in, in Genesis and there's this whole covenant ceremony with animal pieces cut in half and God mm -hmm. walks down the aisle. And basically what he was saying to Abraham is, this is our agreement. I have cut this agreement with you. Um, I am responsible for my part of the agreement, but I am also on the hook for your part of the agreement. Mm -hmm. Right? He's saying, I'm going to use relationship to heal you what was broken in relationship. Mm -hmm. You go through the entire Bible and I could do it. I won't hear. And you land in the New Testament where God says, I'm going to, I'm going to come closer still. And he sends the incarnation, the living presence of God in the body of Jesus. And God is basically saying, you are so traumatized. You have been so wrecked by relationship, but I know the only thing that will heal you is relationship mm. and you won't be able to do it yourself. So I'm going to give you myself. Wow. The one thing that humanity needs most of all is, is presence. Yep. It's presence. That's what brings us healing. And so the thread from beginning to end, and you can go back and look at all of scripture from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, is God saying, I'm giving you myself to heal mm. what is going to do. Wow. Wow. All right. So this is, this is so massive because you know, one of the things that we try to teach people is that, and as, and as I've done some coaching and, and some counseling with folks, one of the things I'll, I'll try to lead them to is, Hey, I want you to, um, to ask God where he was in that circumstance that you endured. Like, where was he, like, where was his presence, you know? <laughs> and oftentimes, you know, it, it, it leads to this really incredible breakthrough where people recognize God really, they experience God firsthand in the midst of them asking all these questions with God. It's kind of like this wrestling with. Mm -hmm. So my question to you, as you've endured all of this hardship and all of these crises, I'm going to turn that question on to you, Michelle, because I have a feeling you've got some, quite some insight into that. Where was God? You know, I, that's such a good question. Uh, he never left. I mean, that's the thing. I couldn't see him. I couldn't feel him. But pain blinds us to what's right in front of us. Mm. Pain is kind of bossy and demanding. It demands the attention. And so it kind of creates this fog, this, this blindedness where you can't see anything but the sound of our own pain. And as I look back on everything that happened, I can see he never left. He never mm. left. It's like the Israelites in the wilderness, the pillar of cloud by day mm -hmm. and the pillar of fire by night. Exodus says it, it never left its place among the people. It never left. And the fact, the reality that I can stand here today after all of this and still believe in a good God, in fact, more so than ever before, yeah. is a testament to the fact that he didn't leave me. Yeah. It makes no sense that I still have faith, none. And the fact that I do is really literally his, his hand on me. There's a, a beautiful story in the New Testament. It's one of my favorites right now when Jesus is talking to Peter and Jesus knows what's coming down the pipe. He knows that the crucifixion is about to happen. He's going to be arrested. Mm -hmm. And he looks at Peter in this place and said, Peter, Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as sweet. Mm. Right? So in other words, he's saying, Simon, bad things are coming. It's yeah. not going to be good. It's going to be brutal. And then Jesus says, but I have prayed for you, Simon. And of course, when that happens, I'm like, okay, what does Jesus pray for in that moment? Does he right. pray for healing? Does he pray for 
an absence of difficulty? Does he pray for a, a good financial paycheck? Does he pray for yeah. Peter? He doesn't pray for any of that. He says, but I have prayed for you, Simon. I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith would not fail. Mm. And to me, that, that says very clearly that Jesus is telling us what is at stake here is our faith. Mm. It's not the number of our days. It's not the happiness of our family. It's none of those things are really what's most at stake. What is at stake is our faith. And so if I can stand here and still have faith, that means the Jesus that prayed for Peter prayed for me too, that my faith would not fail. Wow. And that alone is a testament to the reality of God's presence all along. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. Right. right? It's a grace. Amazing. And, you know, and we find that it's, it's in those spaces where we, most of the time we don't feel God the way we yeah. want to feel him, that our faith is really being grown. You know? And at some point I had to decide if I'm going to trust God based on his history or trust God based on my own. Mm. And so I literally during the last five years and, and in the writing of this book, I, I went from Genesis to Revelation and That's looked great. for the thread of God's presence. Hmm. I had to build my confidence in his reality on the history of his faithfulness, not how I felt in the moment. Wow. Hmm. Yeah, you know, it's really funny. You just, you know, as you mentioned that, I've, I've been thinking a lot about like the 400 years of silence, essentially, where God didn't speak before. You know, obviously, I think about it as we were recording this. We're at the time of the recording of this, we're nearing the Christmas season. And so I think about, you know, all the angst leading up to the Messiah coming in, 400 years of silence. If you lived in that 400 years of silence and that was your only perspective, you would believe God's not real. He's not here. But what you're saying is we can't take just the the sliver of our life and our experience and our history and make that, project that onto who God is and his character. We've got to take a look at his history. His history. You know, wow. Romans says creation itself testifies to the reality of God, right? Creation testifies to the presence of God. So even if there's silence, we can look around us and see evidence of him. Hmm. Right. The thing is, is that we have, and especially this is especially true for Western civilization, especially American culture. We have such an expectation of comfort, of getting everything we want yeah. and having everything go according to plan. We have lost our theology of suffering and mm -hmm. silence and difficulty. Right? And because of that, that's a muscle we're not using. That's why we're so shocked when something bad happens. Yeah. We're so unmoored. There are people around the world that live with suffering on a daily basis that do not struggle to believe in the reality of God. Yeah. Wow. Because they, suffering is a reality. Yep. They expect that. But because of us as Americans, we expect the American dream, right? We yeah. want the, the spouse and the two and a half kids and the car and the job. And, and we want everything to be comfortable at our fingertips is everything mm. we could possibly need to, to numb ourselves of any discomfort. And so as a result, we have lost the ability to suffer well. Wow. So we tend to think that suffering and God are mutually exclusive. They can't exactly. coexist. But you will not find that anywhere in, in scripture. Mm, that's it. You won't. You won't. So if you really want to, you know, we can build our faith. Um, uh, we can, we can trust, we can build our faith on how we feel at the moment. Yeah. Or we can literally build it on a long history, thousands of years of history of God's reality. And even if you don't want to do history, take some time and look around you, this world mm. that we live in, right? Evidence of God is everywhere. Hmm. So we must decide. Wow. 
I tell people all the time, because I used to think I wanted more proof of him. So as I was writing this book initially, I wanted God to give me really big firework displays. I wanted him to answer prayers miraculously and wow me with the way that he fulfilled it. It was very much, I wanted a Hollywood God, mm -hmm. right? I wanted to, I wanted to play out like a good movie. And God said, huh? -uh. And I realized, and this is a quote in the book, I, I realized that I didn't need no more proof of him. I needed more trust in him. Wow. The disciples were with Jesus for three years, watching miracle after miracle <laughs> after miracle. And yet in the garden, when he was arrested, they all fled. They fled, yeah. Miracles didn't make their faith. Mm -hmm. They had to decide what they believed about him. Wow, that is so good. I just read this morning the, the part where Jesus tells the Pharisees, uh, you know, the, there's the sign of Jonah, right? That uh -huh. whole passage where he's like, I could show you sign after sign after sign after sign. You're not going to believe you know, it's even the story of Lazarus, right? The the, yeah. the man Lazarus, that the yeah. servant that died, and the rich man, and he's like, you wouldn't, your relatives wouldn't even believe if a man came back from the dead. Yeah. And at some point, if Lazarus, covered in sores, died at the gate, anonymous, nobody knew him, um, could believe. Wow. Uh, then it's not really about a comfortable life or miracles. Hmm. It's about us knowing the heart of the Father and choosing to trust Him even when life doesn't make sense. Wow. Michelle, this has been an awesome conversation. I wish we could go on for a couple of hours more. <laughs> I feel like we could <laughs> glean so much from you. But in our listeners, uh, absolutely, I would encourage every single one of you guys to pick up this book, Relentless, uh, Michelle Couchat. And um, can you tell us some more about where people can can follow you, where they can, um, the, where the, maybe some resources that people can tap into? <laughs> The easiest way to find me is at my website. So it's at michellecachat.com. It's one L, two T's, M-I-C-H-E-L-E, Cachat, C-U-S-H-A-T-T.com. It's kind of my home base. There's all kinds of free resources. So if you go to my website, click on the resources tab, you can find all kinds of resources. In addition to that, we have a special download that is um, a collection of Bible verses when you need to have reminders of the faithfulness of God's mm. presence, God's relentless presence. So if you go to my website, you'll find that download. You can subscribe to my list. We can send that to you. In addition, I've created a podcast that goes along with the book. So the book's called Relentless, The Unshakable Presence of a God Who Never Leaves. And our goal was just to create as many resources mm -hmm. for people who are in really hard places. And so I've created this 15-episode podcast that goes along with the book. So you can read the chapter, listen to the podcast, talking more about it. And hopefully that will give you some some good, solid, meaty support as you yeah. wrestle with some of the hardest questions about faith. That's great. That's great. Well, I would highly encourage everybody to tap into those resources. And Michelle, again, thank you so much for taking some time with us. You have blessed our community tremendously. Um, and I, I'm just, I'm in awe and inspired by your faith and everything that you've walked through and how you've walked through it. Thank you. It's grace. You know, I yep. shouldn't be here. It's grace. We do it one day at a time. And thank you for making space for these conversations. We need more of this. Yeah. And I'm glad, I'm so glad you're leading the way in these very, very hard conversations. Mm, thank you. That was an incredible interview with Michelle. Holy cow. So much so, so good, Carissa. We're gonna have her back. Like, oh, I'm so glad. We're, I would we're, listen to her five more episodes from her. So just keep oh, that in mind. Man. Well, we are we do a bonus episode with her that we're gonna be releasing next month in June, and Amazing. it's 
unbelievable. Like Man. unbelievable. So I'm those so, of you guys who are I'm monthly so partners, glad. you're going to be privy to it. And if you would like to become a monthly partner so you can listen to that bonus episode and all the other bonus content that we have, go to nothingiswasted.com slash partners. That wasn't even an ad. Look at that. And I just rolled right through it. Our producer would be so proud of me. <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. That was perfect. Perfect. Timing. Anything that kind of stuck out to you on that interview? Yeah. She, uh, she just said so many things. And I feel like this episode, even though she's been through so much, every single person would pull something incredible from it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what you've been through. She just has so much wisdom and insight. And um, one of the things I love that she talked about that we see a lot um, especially in the church and with Christians, is just she said we bootstrap ourselves to this place of positivity, and it's just mm. not honest. Rather than just hold space for grief, and yeah. I love how she talked about that. Um, wow! And especially as she said, when we pretend everything is better than it is, we are cheapening the price that He paid to redeem it. Wow! And that just that got wow. me right between the eyes. I think because yeah. it was it's powerful. Yep. Yeah, like we, you know, we, we've talked about this before, like the tension of this optimism, but I I feel like in order to move through your valley really well, you have to acknowledge the gravity of the situation. You have to acknowledge the gravity of the offense. You have to acknowledge the gravity of the tragedy. Completely. And at the same time, right? It's not a but, you know, we talk about Mm -hmm. the power of and a lot in the pain Mm -hmm. of purpose course. So, and you also have to hold on to the fact that God is going to do something through this to redeem it. Yes. And he's going to turn it around for good. Yes. So it's like a both and. It can't be a, oh, I'm just going to whitewash what happened. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just not going to address it. Not going to, because I'm just a Pollyanna with my head stuck in the sand and I'm optimistic about this. No, this is, this sucks. This is hard. Yes. So yes. let's weep really well. Let's, let's enter into lament, but let's not stay here. Let's exactly. Weep well and she touched and, on that so well. Oh. Yeah. Yes, she had so much hope. And um, yeah. yeah, I love how much uh, confidence she had being at this place, even yeah. with so much trauma that had existed in her life. Right. So, right. yeah. Um, before we go, we also want to just make sure to thank Ryan at Sleeping at Last for providing all the music for the Nothing mm-hmm. is Wasted podcast. Um, personally, his music is on at our house. <laughs> almost daily. I feel like it's the soundtrack to some of our best moments yeah, as a family. That's because your husband's a four. That's why. It's, exactly. He will get you in your four so hard. Oh, man. He speaks <laughs> for every important moment. So it's all just beautiful, amazing. Yeah. So thank you, Ryan. And um, I'm really excited about next week's episode. It mm. is with Jeff and Cheryl Scruggs. Um, and their ministry is near and dear to my heart. I've been following yeah. their story, their journey. They have their own betrayal story. Um, mm. it's not even, it's not even as typical as you would think. No. It's yeah. Really different actually, but really. so many amazing things that they yeah. touch on in their story. So, um, yeah, uh, let's listen in to Davey's interview with Jeff and Cheryl. Here's just a little bit of that. So basically what was happening along that way is I started a full-blown relationship with this other guy. He was coming to Dallas. I was going out there and we were walking to a place of, remember, I was, I've been on the phone with him for two years, okay? Thinking I'm in, this is how deceived I was, thinking I was in love with someone else by talking on the telephone. I mean, it's, you know, he wasn't here. I wasn't. 
there. And so then um, about a month or month and a half after I was studying my Bible, I had, you know, I was in my early thirties and some friends of mine, girlfriends were telling me, teach how to read the Bible, how to understand, you know, Jesus, how to pray. They told me to get a journal and start, you know, journaling my prayers. I'm like, I didn't even know what they were talking about at first. So I did start doing that. And by the end of the year of 1992, I was sitting in my chair one day and it was as if I wasn't writing uh, on my paper. And when I looked down at it, it said, I want you to pursue reconciliation of your marriage. 